Hello and welcome to Sounds Heal Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Brown, and thank you so much for joining me for this episode, the second year anniversary episode of this podcast series. And I thought it would be so nice to have my very first guest back with us today, Thomas Orr Anderson. Now, Thomas is a friend, a colleague, and to many a great inspiration as he uh, merges his devotion to spiritual and nature-based practices, as well as his background in science and physics. And so we have a fun conversation about what he's been up to, what he's inspired by, what he's exploring now. Uh, So please enjoy this podcast. And I also want to thank you all for your support of this podcast the past couple of years. It's been a great adventure for me connecting with so many amazing people that work in sound healing, sound therapy, and generally using sound for health and wellness. And I'm excited for all that is to come with continued conversations and discussions. Also, thank you very much to the Ohm Shop and Spa. They sponsor this podcast series. And uh, it's been a great relationship with them as well. I am very lucky to teach sound healing workshops at the Ohm Shop and Spa in Sarasota. And they're just such a great support to the sound healing community as well. So thank you. And please enjoy this podcast with Thomas or Anderson. Well, thanks so much for taking your time today, Thomas, to to meet with me. I know you're very busy with all kinds of explorations and journeys and studies. And as you know, you were my first guest on this podcast two years ago. So I thought it would be really fun to have you back and see what you're up to. So first of all, how are you doing? Doing doing well. It's a crazy time in the world. Um, very uh, lots of different challenges for different people. It seems like everyone I talk to is facing unique challenges designed specifically for them. And that seem like they have nothing to do with each other directly, but they obviously do since they're happening simultaneously in every domain of life. It's a really interesting time. During this time, I have uh, really been spending a lot of time doing two things mostly. One is teaching and the other is being in the woods, being in the forest. So I've spent a lot of time hiking and during my hiking and waterfall explorations, I do a lot of thinking and uh, figuring things out and such. And then that basically forms the essence of what I teach when I teach. So I've been teaching a really extraordinary amount, teaching every day through this very platform and uh, and then figuring things out that I end up teaching. It's kind of been most of my life. It's in some ways, this world situation hasn't affected my lifestyle very much in some ways, in other ways, very much. Um, Basically, it's narrowed down my life to this one section of it that usually doesn't fill the whole year, but now is like the only section remaining, which is the section where I stay alone in the mountain cabin in the forest and uh, think and teach remotely and write. I have a few books 
coming out as soon as possible. Few books that are already written but aren't uh, put into format. And as you well know, we have this Shasta journal that's almost ready to release and has been for about a year or so, or maybe a little more, but due to a variety of unpredictable circumstances has been postponed for a lot of different strange reasons. But nonetheless, I expect that'll be coming to the world. But yeah, that's kind of the the uh, short view of what I've been up to. Well, tell us some of the things that you have uh, learned from the woods. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. That's an interesting question. Um, well, one thing is this approach to understanding Zen. I've been reading and studying a lot of Zen texts. My first really, well, my first real sort of um, intensive healing teacher was a Taoist teacher and a Qigong master. And then my, and I was his apprentice for a couple of years. And then I was the apprentice of this other healer who came from a Zen tradition. And Zen, interestingly, is kind of, in a sense, the marriage of Buddhism from India with Taoist Taoism from China. It's like Chinese flavored Buddhism. Uh, Indian philosophy, Indian traditions tend to be really complicated and philosophical and full of a lot of really complex metaphysics, like a lot of rules and structure and, you know, the 17 levels of the 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 aura or something there's just this immense 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 like you could spend your whole life studying the systems of yoga and never get all the information of all the different stacks and layers of departments and all the different gods and deities and levels that apply to everything and chinese traditions are in a sense kind of the opposite and this is something I didn't really know before, but now I have recognized it, is that Chinese traditions tend to be very practical and minimalist in terms of complex structure and a lot less uh, metaphysics, a lot less sort of speculative metaphysics. And Buddhism, when it came to from India to China, I always thought of Buddhism kind of as Chinese, and I think a lot of people do, which is funny, but Buddha was in India and Buddhism was originally just in India. But since I guess Buddhism thrived so much in China, we kind of think of it as Chinese, even though it's, it's Indian. And <clears throat> when the Buddhism was brought to China, and according to the mythology, it was brought over by a guy named Bodhidharma. And when it was, it arrived in this form that we know as Indian Buddhism, like the teachings of the Buddha, which is very Indian stylistically. There's a lot of levels and rules, and there's all these sutras that are just filled with fanfare and lots of metaphysics and lots of different names for different types of meditation and names for different levels of meditation. 
names for different realizations, names for different uh, obstacles to realizations. It's just this incredibly complex structure of knowledge and metaphysics. And when Buddhism got to uh, China and went into this Taoist culture where Taoist philosophy was very, very strong, uh, big influence throughout all Chinese thinking, Zen was born. And Zen is like Buddhism without any of the philosophy, without any of the rules, without any of the levels, without any of the metaphysics, is completely unspeakable. It's based 100% on unspeakable direct realization that there's a, a story of Buddha, uh, Buddha, the, the historical Buddha in India, his sort of highest disciple that basically he passed along his sort of, he was the, the next leader. Buddha had a lot of followers and one of his followers became the next leader after Buddha passed and they call him the patriarchs. So he's the first patriarch. I think he's called the first, not the second, kind of like overtones instead of harmonics. But when uh, Buddha held up, was giving a presentation, he always had thousands of people gathered around and he'd give talks every day. And in this talk, he didn't say anything. He just held up a flower. And everyone in the audience, nobody got it except one person. And that person smiled. And that was the first, according to the traditions of Zen, that was the first direct transmission from master to student of the unspeakable truth being passed, transmitted from one from the master to the student unspeakably. And that story is the kind of the foundational story of Zen, that that's how it happens according to Zen. That's how you awaken. That's how you have realization. There's no ideas. There's no thoughts. There's no concepts. And it can pass from the master to the student like that. So someone who's awakened can make some gesture or say something or do something that then instigates the awakening in the student. Or alternatively, it can happen to the student or to the, the aspirant or aspirant, to, to the person aspiring to awaken. It can happen to them from some other circumstance without input from a teacher. That there's sort of this, sometimes it's called a great doubt. <clears throat> there's this buildup of a sort of internal pressure and uh, struggle and agony this, this desire to know the truth and this sort of bother of no matter how you approach it, it's every way you approach it isn't quite right. That no, ma <clears throat> no matter what you do, every approach you do is flawed. Like, for example, if you try to uh, not harm any living beings, for example, if that's kind of a really easy to understand example of the same struggle. If you try to not do any harm to any, any living beings, you don't hurt other people, you don't hurt animals, you become vegan, you do everything you can to bring no harm, you 
you're nice to people, then you can take it all the way to where you live out in the woods. You don't even interact with anybody, but you have to eat. And when you eat, you have to grow food somehow. You have to get food somehow. And in the act of getting food, there is absolutely no way to avoid hurting other sentient beings that you can't help but step on a bug or or hurt an insect that wants to eat your food, but you have to end up injuring the insect in order to have food for yourself. And so in Tibetan Buddhism, that is often taught that that's why Tibetan Buddhists justify eating meat is because when you kill a yak, you kill one sentient being for whom you can do devout prayers and have a ceremony to celebrate its life and to honor it and then feed your family for a month or however long a yak feeds some people. Or if you're vegetarian, you have to, to kill countless insects and microorganisms just to get one salad. And so that basically there's too many beings to be injuring there. Whereas you can, with the yak, you can just injure one being. But basically that I was giving that as an example of a situation where the more you devote yourself to it and the more you really truly try to not harm any other living being, which is one of the Buddhist vows, the more you find yourself in a bind. You're in a between a rock and a hard place and there's no way out. The only way out is to die. But then when you die, you're hurting everybody's feelings who loves you. So there's absolutely no way to quit hurting other living beings. And that's one of the goals of a Buddhist practitioner. And all of these goals, the more you go deep, deep into them, the more you find there's actually no way to do it ever. You can't ever do it. Kind of like a tree, if it's growing toward the sky, toward the sun, a tree that thinks about it might realize, oh my God, I can never reach the sun ever, no matter how hard I try. And even if my hand could get, if my branch could get up there, it'll lose oxygen, it'll lose atmosphere at some point. And then even if I could put on like a spacesuit over my branch and keep reaching to the sun, eventually it'll burn. So like uh, a tree, that thought about things and went philosophically uh, turned toward philosophy would end up realizing that it's futile. Its entire life is trying to do something that can never be done. And so it might get stuck and it would feel this deep spiritual agony. And in Zen traditions, there's a lot of practices and trainings that are designed specifically to increase that agony as intensely as possible to instead of making it tolerable making it absolutely intolerable where you are going nuts where you're um you are incapacitated and they call it the great doubt. So this is kind of one style of Zen, but it's one that's easier to talk about. And 
you build up this sort of pressure builds up like the pressure of you could translate it into the pressure of wanting to know God or wanting to know true love or wanting to know the truth or wanting to feel true peace or wanting to be enlightened, however you like to put it, it's the same pressure build up. And when that pressure is adequately built up, something can pop it. And that popping can be something like the Buddha holding up a flower, or it can be, there's lots of other stories like, like this monk, he couldn't get it. He couldn't get it. He was training with this master and he couldn't get it. And finally he just totally gave up. He's like, I give up. And he goes to uh, live by the grave of some great master who lived long ago and live in poverty and beg for food and just be a gravekeeper to just dedicate his life to just taking care of this gravestone. Basically he just gave up because he's just like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And then one day while he's there taking care of the grave, a rock, a pebble hits a piece of bamboo and makes a noise. And that noise awakened him. And then he was an enlightened teacher and went around teaching people and became one of the greatest teachers in Zen. But there's tons of stories like that. But the original one is Buddha passing along his passing along the hat, so to speak, to the first patriarch or the next sort of leader of Buddhism. <clears throat> and there were, I think there were 28 patriarchs if I'm not, I might be mistaken, but I think there were 28 patriarchs in, in India that led to Bodhidharma, who then took Buddhism to China. And in Zen Buddhism, which developed in China coming from Bodhidharma, the, the, the sutras in the, the, in the traditions of Buddha are used almost like a tool to show what's not right, to show how it leads to just more thinking. Your thinking leads to more thinking and leads to more thinking. This endless maze of trying to get to the truth. Like I like describing it like, imagine if you were living on this sphere, on the surface of the earth, like if this is the surface of the earth and imagine, imagine the truth is out here like somewhere outside the atmosphere, not on the surface, but you never thought of that direction and you just searched and searched and searched and searched. If you didn't ever think of going up, you would think that you're continually getting somewhere. You always think you're getting somewhere, but every once in a while you end up in a closed loop that you might go, wait, I've been here before. I kept going forward and forward and forward and now I'm back where I started. And Zen practices try to, or aim to maximize the likelihood of that experience of ending up realizing that, that everything you do is wrong, that everything you do is a closed loop, that nothing you can do leads to the truth, that you're absolutely stuck and there's nothing you can do. And that's kind of the, the key word is you or me or I, there's nothing I can do to get to the truth. And 
if this surface represents the surface of I or ego or self, then the I can't do anything about it. And so in uh, Christian traditions, for example, it's called grace. Like grace can't be bought or paid for. You can't ask God for grace and then get it because you asked for it. Grace is something unexpectedly bestowed on you and you don't earn it. You're just graced. And it's very similar in Zen is to kind of set up the situation where you realize the only option is grace and you can't get it. And to really, really get yourself into that state where you lose all belief that there's anything you can do to get it with a capital I-T. And so I've been studying that a lot, like very, very much studying Zen texts, studying Zen teachings, and then converting them in a way to um, ways for modern people such as such as we or in such as our students and friends and family basically people in the modern sort of westernized world whether they're in china or in you know australia or the us or whatever still western eyes regardless of your location to translate zen teachings and methods into a sort of a new approach to understanding it that matches our current way of thinking and way of acting and way of living. And that's what I've been working on a lot. And of course, how that relates to sound therapy, it's all the same, it's all the same thing, really. The the experience you give to someone in a sound therapy situation is not irrelevant to the experience gotten by someone practicing Zen meditation. They're not, they're not disconnected from each other. They're related to each other. And how are they related to each other? What's the relationship? And how do we understand that? Or how do we approach it? Or how do we stop approaching it incorrectly? Because a lot of Zen is stopping doing what doesn't work. Instead of giving you, here's, a, here's the answer. Here's how you get, do this, 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 and this. Instead, what you're doing is stop doing this, 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 and this. Because everything you're doing is precisely the thing preventing it from happening spontaneously. And that really matches my personal philosophy of sound healing which is basically the fundamental principle is what I call the self-healing principle, that the human organism is a self-healing system. And every single human body is trying to heal itself one way or another, all of us. And in you know medical traditions, that's called the immune system. But there's more to the immune system than just you know, some subset of our organs our whole body in a way and our mind kind of are an immune system. Our immune system is, is part of being alive. Like part of being alive is trying to stay alive. It's kind of priority number one for a living thing. And so 
this, what I call the self-healing principle is the basis of my whole philosophy of sound healing. That first of all, if we accept that the human organism is a self-healing system, then what we do with sound is help to remove the obstacles to that self-healing. What are we doing? What are you doing? What am I doing that is interfering with or inhibiting our body, mind, spirit, our self-healing uh, capacities? And one of the main ways, perhaps the main way we interfere is through anxiety and stress. So removing anxiety and stress, even if only temporarily, is removing something that interferes with our body's self-healing capacities. And I believe that is the, the center of sound healing, but it doesn't sound very fancy. So people tend to dance around it and look at, point at things that are a lot fancier, but a lot less important than simply giving people the opportunity to be relaxed, not anxious, not tense, not stressed, profoundly relaxed in the body or the person in every level of themselves has the opportunity during that time to do some healing that it was otherwise being prevented from doing because the stress and anxiety was interfering. So that's the same as Zen really. That's a Zen approach. Zen is you're always getting rid of what you're doing that's not right. Getting rid of like stop doing whatever it is. It's putting you in a position where you quit trying to do whatever it is you're doing because your trying is actually interfering. The same with, you know, our stress is always trying. Like every time we're stressed almost entirely, it's some like futile attempt to make things the way we want them to be. Like, you know, if you're stressed that it's raining today, it's, it's a futile attempt to make it not rain. Like, oh, it's raining today and I want to do things I can't do when it's raining. It's kind of like, I wish I were in charge of the universe and could make it stop raining. It's like, it's a type of trying our stress. Every kind of stress we have has some sort of attempt, like a futile attempt in the middle of it. An attempt to, uh, Alan Watts describes, um, like, for example, trying to, uh, he talks about when people try to do things like, um, like, what is it? Like, like listen hard. Like when you really try to listen hard as, to something and we're taught to do things like this when we're a kid, listen really hard. What you do is you end up stressing some muscles around your ears and stressing some useless muscles to try to hear better. And it doesn't work. Or look at something really hard. Look hard and you'll find it, right? Look hard. What does looking hard do? Looking hard just means you're stressing irrelevant muscles that don't actually help you see. And there's all these things we do where we flex our muscles and build, do tensions to try to control our nervous system 
which works better when we're relaxed. Like if you really want to feel something with your hand, tensing your hand doesn't help you feel it. It actually interferes with it. In all of our stress, whether it's mental or physical, at least I won't say all of it, but a great deal of it is resultant from that kind of attempt, an attempt to control something that can't be controlled by means of tensions. And we build up sort of a habitual framework of tensions and anxieties, both mental and physical, that are all based on trying to do something that we can't actually do. That stopping our attempt is exactly the thing that will help us do the thing we want. And so that's very much another way of talking about Zen. And so it all fits together. It's all like Michelangelo effect. The statue's already in the middle of the stone. And what we want to do is carve off the junk that is not the statue. And like our enlightenment or our healing or our whatever it is, is according to this way approach is already there. And we're scraping off whatever's interfering with it or blocking it or covering it. It's already there. Your body's already ready to heal itself if you remove the things that interfere with it. And so that's my approach to sound therapy. And it's also Zen. And um, so I'm working on constantly new ways of uh, sort of presenting that because I think if more people understood it clearly and it didn't seem like far out metaphysics or some sort of spiritual belief system that you might believe or you might not believe or something that needed to be proved, something that needed uh, you know, a bunch of scientists to put sign their name and say, give you a bunch of graphs that show you that it's right. Like to help people see that it's not like that. It's something that they already know from their own experience directly. It doesn't need a bunch of scientists to do, do some kind of study to show you. It's already there. The studies have already been done. We know the human's a self-healing organism. We know stress interferes with it. So that's a bit about what I've been thinking about. Obviously, I'm just kind of scratching the surface, um, trying to tell something that encompasses it somewhat in a time brief enough to fit into a conversation. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I love how it's, uh, I mean, it's all encompassing, you know, the initial things that you mentioned about how you've been doing is, well, teaching and nature and then bringing the Zen concepts into that. How do you think it has affected your teaching? You know, you've been doing so much work online and in so many different series and trainings. How do you think that really getting into that mindset has affected you as, as a teacher? Well, one thing that's affected me as a teacher pretty dramatically is teaching so much. I mean, the Dig Deeper has gone... We're about half, I think we're exactly halfway through our ninth season, each season being 36 hours. So that's a lot of hours of, of class just in the dig deeper. And then we've done a couple online gong camps now 
each of which is five full days where from my time zone, I'm going from about 7.30 a.m. till 5 p.m. with a one-hour break, five days in a row. And then we have follow-up days. So we've done a couple of those. We've done a couple all-weekend online teaching, training, retreat kind of events. And then I have private students that I teach that are in a, a number of people are in my six-month training. And then I have other private students that I teach, you know, just more like one-offs. And so it's a lot of teaching practice, teaching through these, um, this virtual format. And one really convenient thing about this, this, the things I was mentioning in the, that I've been thinking about a lot, this Zen kind of approach is that it doesn't, isn't narrowed down. It's the same, no matter where you look, that there's one fundamental sort of principle or approach or way of looking at things that applies across the board, whether you're talking about this topic or this topic or this topic or this topic. Like for example, I'm teaching geometry to a high school student that's homeschooling and so I'm teaching geometry and teaching geometry and then teaching things about playing gong, it's actually this Zen approach that I'm bringing up. It's the same for both of those, even though those topics are so very, very different. So that's one thing that's been really cool is realizing that no matter what you're teaching, there are some central principles that apply in every domain whatsoever. And that indicates to me that they're worthwhile. Like for example, the, the book, the Tao Te Ching, the sort of classic, most important Taoist text that was written, it is believed somewhere around 500 BC, about the same time as Buddha was living, about 500 years before Christ. And that book, it, is I tell people no matter what topic that they are interested in, whether it's physics, astronomy, biology, cooking, uh, cleaning, you know, forestry, name a topic, it doesn't matter what it is, rocket science, janitorial science, any topic whatsoever, dance, anything, that book is a manual for it. And through teaching so much and teaching so many different topics to so many different sorts of people with different backgrounds and people in different countries and people in different life situations and people with different experience levels, different knowledge bases, teaching them and teaching in all these different places and doing it so much has really even sort of clarified further and further and further that there are some central principles that can't really be said exactly, but can be communicated by means of sort of talking around them. Like I like to use this example of a hoop. Like imagine that the hoop itself is the domain of words that we can communicate. This is all the stuff we can say is on the hoop. 
But suppose that the thing we want to communicate is here in the middle. We can't get to it with words because all words live on this place. But what we can do is circle it enough to trace an arc around it sufficiently much that it indicates the center. So like if you draw a real circle on a real piece of paper, if it's a well-drawn circle, it precisely indicates the center point without ever drawing it. And the deepest, most profound and important pieces of knowledge, I think are like that, that they're something we can't pass along directly, just like you can't, uh, just it's like you can't, uh, you know, there's no wood at the center of this hoop, but the center is very well um, indicated by the hoop. The center kind of exists. And no matter where I move the hoop, no matter which way I twist it, the center is always well indicated, even though there's nothing there. And that has become clearer and clearer and clearer to me. And that's been a real treat. And that's part of what keeps me so focused on the the things that I'm focused on is because personally, my primary interest is in and has been in things that are like that. Things that are so valuable that they transcend situations and contexts and times and places and personalities and cultures. What are things that topics, or knowledge or approaches or whatever it is, things that someone can know or can learn or can communicate or can illuminate that are valuable everywhere all the time for everyone without exception. That's my interest. That's, and it's been my interest the whole time. And uh, this, this is just kind of more more time to focus on that and more reason to more opportunity to and, right. and it ends up benefiting my students too because i feel really grateful to have something valuable to share and it seems to me that the the more i'm doing this the, actually the more valuable what i'm sharing is it has less and less crust on it it's more and more well indicated the center of the hoop. So right, right. More, more focused and more honed in on. Yeah, that's a great uh, demonstration and visual too. Yeah. Well, I'm curious. You know, with all these trainings that you've been doing and collaborations and and uh, studies, what what is specifically related to the sound work? What is surprising you right now? Like, what are you really curious about? Um, with all these different trainings. And I mean, you talked about nine different uh, series and seasons of Dig D Deeper. What's really uh, exciting you right now? Hmm. What's surprising me or exciting me? In interestingly, I really the, the same things are surprising me and exciting me. Um, the same things I was just talking about. Because I... I can't put that much of my attention on something unless it is surprising and exciting me. But <clears throat> one thing that's been really interesting is I've been co-teaching with two other teachers a lot, Mike Tamburo and Mitch Nur, 
we've been co-teaching a lot of things and it's really, really, that's been really fun and illuminating in a lot of ways because we're all very different. We have very different personalities, very different approaches, very different lives. And we previously, we haven't really known each other very long, um, like just a couple of years or so. But it's really interesting that each of us coming from totally different places through totally different experiences, through very different goggles, have come to this sort of knowledge or whatever you might call it that fits. So what I teach and what he teaches and what he teaches fits together in a way that supports it kind of one way or approach or view of it helps to uh, give context and support for the other and for the other. And so having, having that sort of, it's kind of like, you know, if you're showing a view of something like a cube or something, if you just see one view of it, it might be harder to understand that it's a cube. You might see a square and you see another view of it and it's a hexagon. And then you see another view of it and it's sort of a diamond shape or something. And, but when you get three different views, you really can get a better sense of that cube. And it's been surprising to me that the cube, sort of metaphorically speaking, that each of us is always pointing at is one in the same cube that that uh, that we've come to the same thing from very different angles, which indicates that the thing isn't part of our personality or our own um, sort of limited view or something. It's not the the leftovers of you know where we come from or our life habits or something that it, it really uh, <clears throat> clarifies that what we're sharing is is a kind of true in a sense that's independent of the individuals presenting it. It's challenging to say what I mean there adequately, but hopefully I did. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have to say from personal experience, and I know the the attendees that have um, been a part of these various trainings and series is you're absolutely right. Whatever the topic is at hand, the three of you each have these different perspectives and backgrounds. And I, that's why I think that, you know, you're now on your ninth series is that it, it is just that um, fascinating and fun and informative and um, everyone's just really inspired by it all, including the three of you. So, yeah. Um, I think it's been a huge benefit to those who have been able to attend, especially this past year. Um, I think it's been a, a huge motivator and a great learning experience uh, for all involved. So thanks to the three of you for continuing to, to push forward with that. It's been great. Yeah. And so I was going to ask a couple things about you mentioned you have two books coming out and various projects. Uh, what should we expect from you this year moving ahead with, of course, continuing with uh, Dig Deeper, but what else do you have uh, 
in the works? It's a really good question. I have more things in the works than as far as I can tell, I can actually get out to the world. And um, so which ones are going to pop out when is kind of the question. But um, some things I have sort of uh, close to reaching the public eye or I have a book about the Tao Te Ching that's going to be coming out. So it's a book to help people understand the Tao Te Ching because I have come to basically I started teaching about the Tao Te Ching a lot in the course of my classes. And as I taught about it, it's a very, uh, for anybody who's not familiar, it's a book that can seem like absolute nonsense or it can seem really hard to understand and really weird. But once you get a few things, it starts to make a lot of sense and be really clear. So it's really interesting that it can seem just like absolute babble nonsense. And then it can seem like the most, yeah, the absolutely most clear and simple statements of as true as a statement can be in a sense. And <clears throat> what I realized in the course of teaching that to people was that there are a few sort of principles or keys that once somebody gets those keys, then the Tao Te Ching is easy to relatively, mostly easy to understand. So as I kept doing that over and over again, I kept finding it's still the same keys over and over again. So I decided to make that into a book because I think that there's a lot of people that would like to better understand the Tao Te Ching and a lot of people who would benefit from that. And because it's, you know, one of the most popular books on earth in history up there with the Bible and, um, in the, you know, a little bit older, at least in the New Testament. And, but it's, it's really, you know, I don't know, like maybe billions of copies or something. I don't know how many, but it's a very, very popular book. And there's lots of different translations and none of them seem to quite agree with each other and so forth. And so I've been working on also translating it, which has been really interesting because I don't speak Chinese, but there are a lot of online translator programs. And so I can actually each Chinese character, I can translate it, see all the different things it might mean. And then I can compare that to a bunch of different translations. And through the process of translating the Chinese characters with translators, multiple translators, which all disagree with each other a little bit, some like different dictionaries give you slightly different definitions. And then somewhere around a dozen different translations of the Tao Te Ching, I've been going through it sort of with a fine tooth comb doing that and better and better understanding it. You know, that's a way of kind of looking at it from a bunch of different angles and then comparing what I thought it meant with what I'm, you know, seeing from all those different angles. And then that's Basically, I'm producing a new translation of it that goes with, that'll be the second half of the book, 
the first half of the book being the keys to understanding it. And then of course, I also suggest that people don't just read my translation, but read a bunch of translations. And uh, so that's coming out soon. I have another really big, that's already written, but there's just formatting and such to do and editing and formatting. I also have another pretty thick book that's uh, I think gonna be called uh, Notes on the Theoretical Foundations of Sound Therapy something like that, but it's a bunch of collection of essays on different topics that kind of illuminate some little aspect, some, it's kind of, it's not structured at all. It's like almost like a journal of almost in an encyclopedia format, but not following some particular order other than time, because I write these little essays about different topics and have been for a very long time. And it's basically a collection of those with also lots of good illustrations um, to help just clarify things in a lot of ways and also to help overcome misunderstandings because there's a lot of misunderstandings addressed in that book. Um, I'm also about to start teaching an online Qigong course that uh, I it, it will be starting up very soon. I think it'll be on probably Tuesdays and Thursday mornings but people will be able to do that in their own time, you know, watch the video. And <clears throat> also, uh, what else? Basically dig deeper season. We've got all the way through season 12 planned. So we're, we're going to keep going with dig deeper. And for anybody who doesn't know, uh, you can go, you can find the classes on dig deeper sounds or dig deeper sound.com. And um, also there's uh, Facebook pages and the course series is called Dig Deeper Exploring Sonic Wisdom. And you can attend the Zoom classes live. They're each three hours, three days a week, or you can watch them after the fact or both. So if you buy tickets, you can either show up to the class or you can watch it after the fact. It usually takes about a week for the videos to come up. And, or you can do both. You can be there and then review it after the fact. And <clears throat> that's a pretty awesome program for the people who have done the whole series. It is, I didn't know it was going to be this. None of us did. We didn't know we were going to do more than one series, but there's been nine so far. And for the people that have done all of them, it's a very, very well-rounded sound therapy education like it's tremendously thorough and we go into science we go into history we go into anthropology go into techniques and we've gotten pretty good at how to actually transmit sound well and do demonstrations so that people can actually learn techniques and um, it's a pretty amazing program and i highly recommend it we have uh, another gong camp coming up and that's really awesome. That's really exciting. And that's also can be found on uh, the, uh, I think you have to find that through Facebook on nine ways, or you can contact me on Facebook. It's probably the easiest thing. Um, that's a five day, all day gong training. That's really, really thorough training. 
And then we're going to have an advanced gong camp for people that have already done the first one. And um, I'm really excited to, oh, another thing is I've, I, since I go hiking every day, I've been filming and recording a lot of nature sounds and videos. And I have a really excellent system for recording the audio of these walks through the forest and the sounds. And I'm not sure where or what format they're going to come out, but I'm going to soon have some kind of channel where people can basically go on these like somewhere between three minutes and 20 minutes kind of nature experience that's both visual and audio. It's kind of like a meditation or a sound therapy or a a relaxation. And uh, that's going to be coming to the public pretty soon. And also I'm going to probably have a new podcast series that my other podcast series, those who have um, followed it, it's called the art and science of sound healing. And you've probably noticed that I haven't, I've done practically nothing in the last year on it. Basically my whole life flipped upside down and inside out about a year ago. And um, so not sure what's going to happen with that. It'll probably keep going. I'm not sure, but I'm also going to have a new podcast series that's a little more uh, general in its topics. Um, and yeah, just keep your eyes peeled for that. And uh, yeah, I think that kind of roughly sums it up. And that's only a tiny slice of all the things I have on my plate. So you can see that it's kind of, uh, I need a couple assistants. And of course, there's all the unknown, unknown things coming up too. So those are just yeah. things that you, that you <laughs> hope right. to do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's another thing I guess I should say on here is I am going to probably, I'm put, kind of put some feelers out there, but probably going to do some kind of internship where um, somebody will be a sort of administrative intern in exchange for uh, my advanced sound training. And, oh, and I guess I should also mention that I teach a six month advanced sound training course that is really, really awesome. I have to, I have to say that based on witnessing what occurs for the students and, um, what the feedback they give and kind of watching it. It's a very excellent training program and it happens. Most of it's virtual, but some of it is, uh, in person. And if anybody is interested in, uh, an advanced sound training program, that's very personalized and one-on-one that's focused totally on your objectives and your own trajectory, not based on here's, predetermined material, but kind of like a personal trainer style situation where a personal trainer assesses what your personal goals are, what your trajectory is, and the whole program is designed to help you achieve that. This is that same basic idea, but for sound training. And so uh, that's, that's one of the most awesome things in my life. And I have room for maybe a couple more students at a time. I can't have too many at a time, but I think I have room for maybe two more at this time. If anybody's interested, 
reach out to me. There's also information about it on my website, thomasoranderson.com, O-R-R-T-H-O-M-A-S-O-R-R-A-N-D-E-R-S-O-N.com. And probably that'll, I presume that'll be in the description of this episode. Great. So is that the best way for people to reach you if they're interested in any of those things? Just best way to reach me is honestly for communication through Facebook. Okay. Yeah. And uh, in terms of uh, finding out about some of my stuff, that website, but that website's new and I'm slowly pulling all the million different things I do together into one website, but it's still only a little bit of it. So um, everything I do and everything I just said is not there on the website, but there is a contact form on there, I think. It's new and I don't have it fully built, but trying to, instead of having, you know, a bunch of different websites, trying to get to where I just have one website, but I'm only partway through that process. So yeah, probably Facebook, unfortunately right now is the best way to reliably contact me. Great, great. Well, gosh, thank you so much, honestly, just for your dedication um, to your own practice, because I think it just lends itself to everything that you do. But thank you also for just your uh, your passion for this field. It really comes across um, in the way you speak, but also in the um, opportunities that you provide for people. So thank you so much for being you Pleasure. and for all that you do. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing what you do also. I'm oh, glad you. we uh, are past crossed each other in this universe. Lucky us. Yes, yes. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Sounds Heal Podcast, sponsored by the Ohm Shop and Spa. You can keep up to date with what's coming up next at soundshealstudio.com. Check things out on Facebook at Sounds Heal Studio. And you can listen to all previous podcasts as well as music meditations on the YouTube channel at Sounds Heal Studio. Be well and stay tuned. <laughs>